break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 25th of July, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, and we've got plenty for you here on the show today. We want to talk about a crucial topic as it concerns geopolitics and geostrategic interest, and that's the Horn of Africa and how the region is at a crossroads. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is scheduled to travel to Ethiopia this week as part of an African tour to Egypt, Republic of Congo, and Uganda. Lavrov's trip has implications for Africa more broadly, but also helps highlight the role of the Horn of Africa in the current geopolitical cross-currents. In particular, because Lavrov's trip follows closely on U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, Mike Hammer, traveling to Ethiopia last week, and the current presence of USAID Director Samantha Power in the Horn of Africa, a trip that was revealed in a video released this past weekend, mainly taking aim at Russia and China. Ultimately, it's not fully possible to grasp what's happening in the horn outside of the broader context of the continent and where it fits into the calculations of various players on the international stage. Lavrov's trip is ostensibly related to the issue of access to food and fertilizers in the context of the war in Ukraine. And it's not just ostensibly, it is partially about that, but I think there's more to it as we'll speak to. But coming as it does after the Ukraine-Russia grain deal, the trip serves, among other things, as something of a vindication for the African Union. The European Union was recently forced to clarify its own sanctions just in the wake of the Turkish-sponsored grain deal to make sure it was clear that agricultural trade between Russia and third countries, quote-unquote, facilitated by European companies and banks, was in fact legal and would not in fact run afoul of the sanctions. Now, the EU for months had been denying that their sanctions had any impact at all on the issue of African nations being able to buy food and fertilizer from Russia. Now, AU leaders, both at the country level and the African Union itself, have been saying for quite some time that sanctions had been playing a significant role in the potential of a major food crisis, in particular their own ability to gain food and fertilizer. Lavrov's trip then, which seems unlikely to announce any big major new deals, at the very least will reaffirm that Russian trade with Africa is increasing, and certainly that ends up all around as a humiliating climb down for the European countries who are obviously trying to prevent this from happening in order to use food as a weapon to turn African nations against Russia. Now it seems the reverse is happening. And this comes at a time when a document by the head of the EU delegation to the African Union recently circulated among diplomats in Brussels and was seen and revealed by journalists. And that document stressed that the EU is rapidly losing influence in Africa. And while the document stated, more or less, that the EU should try to sound nicer and more understanding, it also laid out the key coercive fact that, quote, Willingness of Europeans to maintain higher levels of financial engagement in African countries will depend on working based on common values and a joint vision, end quote. 
In other words, support our agenda for Africa, and just look at Africa, how well is that going? Or we will attempt to inflict economic pain on you and just make it all the worse. And this is the critical context for where things stand in the horn, which is at a key geopolitical intersection as it regards Africa's global positioning going into the middle of this century. The horn is at a critical juncture in its own development, and significant ethnic tensions in Ethiopia in particular are creating a scenario where even the territorial integrity of that country has been called into question. Eritrea also continues to be at the center of a large-scale propaganda campaign against it, as well as a sanctions regime, and Somalia is entering into a tricky transitional period both between presidents and in terms of its national security. So in other words, the general motion, since a tripartite alliance between Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia was signed in 2018 and was starting to bring them together, seems relatively stalled with some significant implications for the region, the continent, and the world. Now, it certainly isn't lost on any student of history that the powerful Western nations have used every possible division between African nations and ethnicities within nation states, much to their benefit, to establish both colonial and neocolonial regimes. The same has obviously been broadly true in the Horn of Africa. I mean, somewhat amazingly to many, the U.S. government first sided with Egypt in its threat to attack Ethiopia's Grand Renaissance Dam. That was under Trump, by the way. And then the U.S. went on to provide tacit support, along with the EU, to the armed uprising launched by the former ruling party of Ethiopia, known by the acronym of TPLF. Engaging in a massive propaganda effort to demonize the Ethiopian government while prettifying the TPLF and its various crimes. The U.S. has now become a major advocate of being, quote-unquote, concerned at any ethnic strife in Ethiopia, including in areas like the Amhara region, where for nearly two years they were going, and that's the U.S., by the way, out of their way to ignore atrocities that were conducted by the Amhara as long as they were conducted by the TPLF. Now, it stands to reason their newfound concern about the Amhara, the Oromo, and anyone else they can find in Ethiopia is not an accident. In fact, Breakthrough News heard directly from a cabinet official in Ethiopia last year that the U.S. had openly told them that they had issues with the 2018 Unity Agreement, and particularly with the role of Eritrea in it. And in that context, it certainly appears fair to surmise that the U.S. strategy is aimed towards continuing its previous strategy, which is to find a path that ultimately decreases the national unity of Ethiopia and the regional unity between horned countries. This strategy makes even more sense when one examines U.S. Special Envoy Mike Hammer's recent trip to Ethiopia. Hammer's trip was filled with sweet phrases praising Ethiopia for its efforts in humanitarian relief and towards national dialogue. But it's important to read between the lines here. When it came to the issue of the two sanctions bills pending in Congress, Hammer said those were congressional issues and had to be engaged at that level. In other words, he said, well, I'm not really going to help you there, despite the fact his own statements speak against the very reasoning for the sanctions, allegedly, in the first place, which lets you know they aren't really what they're about, what they say they're supposed to be about. Further, when it came to the issue of Ethiopia regaining eligibility for the trade deal known as AGOA, which it was removed from at the end of 2021, and which is already causing waves of worker layoffs in affected industries, Hammer was noncommittal, stating that Ethiopia's actions have been quote-unquote helpful in terms of a reconsideration. In other words, the U.S. isn't committing to let Ethiopia back in and is waiting to see if, well, they're going to play along with what the U.S. wants. It's pretty clear what's happening. The U.S. is dangling the possibility of sanctions relief at a time where it's critically important to Ethiopia as it begins a process of national dialogue that many hope will lead to greater national reconciliation. What's the relationship between the two, you might ask? 
Well, the possibility of a more prosperous, equitable future in general clearly goes a long way towards underpinning a process of national dialogue by creating a sense of national possibility. You want to find a solution because you want the country to stay together. In other words, all the various actors in the national dialogue, that is. There is also the particular fact that the large protests of Amhara and Oromo people that led to the demise of the TPLF ruling faction was heavily predicated on economic dissatisfaction. In particular, that inequitable distribution of the fruits of growth were responsible for mass youth unemployment in both regions and among both peoples. So in both the general and the particular, the U.S. is essentially saying to the Ethiopian government, play by our rules and we will help you. If not, we can cause even more economic pain, which will only further undermine the ability that Ethiopia has to create an environment conducive towards national unity and peace. Now, what the exact U.S. agenda is, is something of a question here, but there are some broad contours that seem relatively clear. Now, whether or not balkanization is the direct goal is unknown, shouldn't be ruled out, but it seems more likely to me that what the U.S. really wants is a form of federalism that is pretty close to balkanization, where the forces of division and ethnic competition can more easily override national and regional agendas, which increase the strategic autonomy of the Horn of Africa. And that swings us all the way back around to Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's trip to Africa. While it is certainly about food and other trade matters, it's very clear that by going to Egypt, Ethiopia, and Uganda, the Russians are trying to offer their good offices as negotiators for issues surrounding Certainly the Grand Renaissance Dam, but also potentially the TPLF insurgency. Egypt and Ethiopia are, of course, at odds over the dam. And Uganda has been rumored to be supporting the TPLF insurgency. Now, they're denying that. And whatever the truth of that is, it is true that the son of the Ugandan president has certainly made several demonstrative pro-TPLF statements. And certainly Russia will engage Uganda on this issue. And Russia is undoubtedly very concerned with the prospects for disunity among the now basin and horn countries for more or less the same reason the U.S. seems to be for such disunity. The Horn of Africa is rich in many resources and is in a critical geostrategic region at the crossroads of a significant chunk of world trade and immediately adjacent to the oil-rich areas of West Asia. The idea of a deepening unity between the Horn of Africa creates problems for the United States, which in its own national defense strategies, stretching back to 1991, has stressed the need to control critical geostrategic nodes. The changes since 2018 have seemed to move somewhat in the other direction. First and foremost, just the fact of the three countries working together is something that U.S. strategy, in league with the TPLF, had prevented for 30-some-odd years. Second, you can see that while Ethiopia has obviously sought to maintain its longstanding ties to the U.S., it has also followed the logic of the economic center of gravity shifting towards Asia, and they have expanded their economic relations accordingly. Ethiopia has also sought to pursue food sovereignty to a greater degree, seeking to be self-sufficient in wheat by next year, after ramping up production 70% this year, by the way. So with more clean energy from the GERD Dam, greater food self-sufficiency, deeper reliance on integrated regional markets, deepening technological and economic cooperation with China and Russia, you can see how clearly, as the EU report at the top of this segment noted, a key area in Africa is slipping out of Western hegemony and seeking to redefine its relationship to the West, to the East, and the world more broadly. And this is where the issue of Eritrea becomes essential. Eritrea is a well-known advocate of self-reliance among developing nations. They're also known to be forthright in opposing the U.S. agenda in the region when it came to fragmenting Somalia in the mid-2000s, isolating Iran during the maximum pressure era, opposing U.S. attempts to sanction countries like Russia and Venezuela into oblivion, and generally pursuing a very, quote-unquote, non-aligned foreign policy. 
The U.S. has gone to great lengths to keep Eritrea isolated for exactly those reasons, pressuring other countries to deny them aid in addition to their own, the U.S.'s, sanctions. Not only does the alliance between Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea lessen that isolation, it draws Eritrea further into a powerful economic compact that could drastically aid its development efforts, which would deeply undermine the Western narrative against the country generally, and also offer a powerful refutation and counterexample to the Western narrative on African development, or more to the point, the continued underdevelopment perversely presented as a development strategy. So we've seen the critiques of Eritrea increase markedly in the past few months, including the charge that Eritrea is the one trying to fragment Ethiopia rather than, say, the TPLF. And stories of this nature abound in the Western media, accompanied by many lies, distortions, and mistruths. What isn't reported by the media at all, for instance, is the recent United Nations Development Program country report on Eritrea, which noted the country was taking, quote, bold steps towards achieving sustainable development goals set up by the United Nations, and that, quote, significant areas have been managed sustainably and used wisely by local communities under a locally designed benefit-sharing regime to improve their livelihoods. And they also noted that there was, quote, full participation by local communities participating in Eritrean governmental structures. And Eritrea also upended the apple cart a bit when they recently hosted new Somali president Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud for a four-day visit that caught most by surprise. The Somali president had been hostile to Eritrea while in opposition, but while there, met with Somali soldiers being trained in Eritrea, debunking many myths that they had been killed fighting in Ethiopia, among other things, and also signed a memorandum of understanding, pledging deeper relations between the two nations. Perhaps it isn't a coincidence that shortly after this visit, the U.S. Congress took preliminary steps towards de facto recognition of the breakaway Somaliland region, itself another commentary on U.S. policy towards the Horn of Africa. Ultimately, then, a few things are clear. Greater unity in the Horn of Africa is an economic and social predicate to a crucial geostrategic region moving out of total Western hegemony. Those same Western forces are looking to use sanctions and the threats of loss of funding to shape an agenda that means less national and regional unity, likely the re-isolation of Eritrea, and possibly even the balkanization of Ethiopia. It's also clear that Russia and China are also working to strengthen that national and regional unity because for them, Africa taking on even a slightly more self-determining attitude is critical to avoiding isolation on the international stage. The question is, in the horn, and Africa more broadly, whether African nations can seize on the decomposition of the unipolar world order to assert interests that empower the broad masses of African people, or whether the continent simply adapts to a modified neocolonialism. Which speaks to my final point. As much as outside forces are working here, the actions of Africans are in fact the key factor. None of the outside forces can simply impose themselves on an unwilling people, which means the outcome of this struggle depends heavily and perhaps even primarily, on the question of national dialogue and potential national reconciliation in Ethiopia, given the role of the country and the region. Things have become very tense in Ethiopia, as a spate of targeted killings has taken place against Amhara people by the so-called Oromo Liberation Army that claims to be fighting for the independence of the Oromo region. This has created a major rift within Ethiopia and the diaspora more broadly around the use of the phrase Amhara Genocide. Many Amhara people are deeply upset that there is a reticence by those from other ethnic groups and even in their own ethnic group to use the phrase. 
They fear that this reticence stems from either a misguided desire to shield the Ethiopian government from criticism for not stopping the targeted killings by downgrading their seriousness, or at worst, that it is a cover for deep-seated bigotry emanating primarily from the Oromo, the largest ethnic group, that does, in fact, aim towards an ethnic cleansing agenda and that is using the central government as its agency. On the other side, there are many, especially in the Oromo community, who feel that the accusation unfairly lumps them in as genocidaires with what they feel is an unrepresentative sliver of their ethnic group that is engaged in killing Amhara people as part of a deeper agenda to fragment the country, probably in league with the TPLF. There are also those who don't believe in any sort of ethnic politics who feel either using the phrase or not using the phrase is crucial because to do anything else is to stoke the flames of ethnic hatred, which will lead to the dissolution of the country. So you can see, from the point of view of a national dialogue, which the government is now beginning in earnest, and which includes potential peace negotiations with the TPLF, creates a number of different fault lines and obstacles to national reconciliation. The problem, in a way, stems from the fact that what I just presented was the most quote-unquote good-faith version of these disputes. National dialogue presupposes a national goal. So the solution, it seems, can only come from first principles. If one feels Ethiopia should remain as a country, this requires some baseline agreement against any sort of ethnic violence for political ends or otherwise, as well as an end, total end to hate speech. It also requires a clear faith that there will be legal consequences for violating these shared agreements. In other words, a baseline of public safety. Then dialogue can take place because the truth is, the very fact that this disagreement is taking place speaks to the need for national dialogue that can lead to national reconciliation. There are people, for instance, who are using the phrase Amhara genocide who do not want to see the country unraveled and that don't hate other ethnic groups. In fact, who want to see more unity across the broader country and across the broader region. There are those refusing to use the term who desperately oppose all of the targeted killings of Amhara people and all ethnic hatred and chauvinism, and similarly would like to see more cooperation and understanding in a national framework. On the same token, there are those who are using the phrase Amhara genocide that don't really want the killing to stop. They want to stoke the flames of ethnic hatred as much as they can because they want the country to collapse into warring ethnic fiefdoms. And likewise, there are those saying there is no genocide from the Oromo community and elsewhere who also want Ethiopia as we know it unraveled and also hope to stoke the flames of ethnic hatred to the maximum degree possible to achieve their goals. So there isn't simply a cut and dry reality here where one's language on this issue is directly related to one's preferred outcome to how the issue is resolved. It ultimately boils down to whether or not one believes it can be resolved or should be resolved or can't or shouldn't be resolved. And that is what the future of the region is likely to come down to, again, as I mentioned, given Ethiopia's central role as a regional anchor state. If there's going to be a national dialogue and national reconciliation in Ethiopia, it seems very unlikely that it's going to start with the total identity of views on the long and complex history of ethnic relations in the country, which is coloring what's happening right now. It's more likely to start and succeed on the basis of wanting to resolve the issues within a national framework and through political, not military solutions in the context of a clear, unbiased, equitable expectation of public safety among all. Then working backwards to address how to characterize the moment in the midst of deeply held grievances that color the various narratives of how we got to where we are. And it's worth noting here that in 2005, the TPLF lost the only semi-fair election they set up during their entire 31-year reign to a political coalition that was, in fact, not based on ethnicity. 
It's also notable that in 2014, the mass protest movement that ultimately evicted the TPLF governing regime was based on a strong Amhara Oromo unity in large numbers coming out all around the country in a way that shifted the political calculus. It's also worth noting that in 2014, the mass protest movement that ultimately evicted the TPLF governing regime was based on Amhara Oromo unity in large numbers, in addition to many others, and that the basis of the battlefield defeat of the TPLF just last year or so was also based on the broad unity of wanting some sort of future for Ethiopia without full agreement on exactly how that was going to play out. So as much as division is highlighted, there's also a clear history and reality around a strong desire for unity and a much more equitable society. Whether that's the direction Ethiopia travels, or if it and the Horn moves towards greater balkanization and disunity, seems dependent on whether or not these differences and divisions can be overcome. What that means for the region and the continent is also clear, that the most developed attempt to move Africa into a less subordinated position in the past couple decades is at stake, and whether overcoming the various legacies of imperialism, colonialism, and neocolonialism can be transcended to provide a better future for the masses of Africans this century. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. 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 Yeah.